0: We are in Matthew chapter 15 in our series going through the gospel of Matthew. We're calling this Confessions of a Sinner. Because Matthew was, in fact, that. Matthew was a sinner. He was a tax collector. It was one of the worst jobs you could work in the land of Israel during the time of Christ. He was literally a betrayer of his homeland, betrayer of his people. It'd be like bringing Edward uh, Snowden back into the country and asking him to to work here. I mean, we we view him and what he did to our nation, how he betrayed um, our national interests as being a person of treasonous intent. And so we wouldn't look at him with respect and with honor. And this is what Matthew's job was. He was betraying his fellow countrymen. He was making a living by ripping off his fellow Jewish brothers and sisters. And so we're calling this Confessions of a Sinner because this is the life of Christ through the lens of a man who nobody cared for, who nobody respected, who nobody accepted. And I think we oftentimes can relate to that. At one time or another, you will feel rejection, you will feel neglect, you will feel uh, just ostracized by people that you just want to be included in. And this is Matthew's story. And the beautiful thing about Matthew's story is that the God of all the universe, wrapped in flesh, in Jesus Christ, he saw the one that no one wanted. He saw the one that no one respected. He saw the one that everyone rejected, and he said, you know what, I want that one. Because everybody matters to God. And so if you're here today and you're experiencing that, you have these feelings of abandonment, feelings of rejection, you need to understand that God loves you dearly and you're the one that he wants. Matthew chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, we're going to start off with our reading. It says that some Pharisees and teachers of religious law now arrived from Jerusalem to see Jesus. They asked him, why do you, uh, your disciples disobey our age old tradition? For they ignore our tradition of ceremonial hand washing before they eat. And Jesus replied, And why do you, by your traditions, violate the direct commandments of God? For instance, God says, Honor your father and mother. And anyone who speaks disrespectfully of father and mother must be put to death. But you say it's all right for people to say to their parents, Sorry, I can't help you. For I vowed to give to God what I would have given to you. So in this way... You say they don't need to honor their parents. So you cancel the word of God for the sake of your own tradition, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are so far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. Verse 10 says, Then Jesus called to the crowd to come and hear. Listen, he said, and try to understand. It's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you. You're defiled by the words that come out of your mouth. Then the disciples came to him and asked, Do you realize you offended the Pharisees by what you just said? And Jesus replied, Every plant not planted by my heavenly Father will be uprooted, so ignore them. They are blind guides leading the blind. And if one blind person guides another, they will both fall into a ditch. Then Peter said to Jesus, Explain to us the parable that says people aren't defiled by what they eat. Don't you understand yet? Jesus asked. Anything you eat passes through the stomach and then goes into the sewer. But the words you speak come from the heart. That's what defiles you. For from the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. These are what defile you. Eating with unwashed hands will never defile you. Let's pray in this place. Father in heaven, God, I know you've prepared a word for us, Lord. And it's so hard difficult to be faced with the reality of the sinfulness of our hearts. So God, I just pray that your grace would fall in this place. God, that you would speak, you would reveal the areas in our lives we've kept from you, the areas in our lives we've not been honoring you. And God, that you would help us to see the reality of that sin and what that sin is doing in our lives. Father, I pray that you would help us to recognize that no one is exempt from the sinful curse that's in this world but it's only through placing our faith and trust in Jesus Christ that we can have hope to overcome our sin and hope to overcome this life. God, we thank you for your love and your grace. I just pray now that you would speak clearly and that you would be glorified in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Today's message is called The Line. The Line. In our history, we've had very brief history. America's not been around that long. But in our history, we've had several really important wars. And one of the famous battles in one of these wars that we fought that have helped kind of create the nation that we enjoy today, there was a battle called the Battle of the Alamo in Texas. And the uh, the commander of the Alamo Defense Forces, Colonel William Travis, He was facing insurmountable odds. The Mexican army had advanced on them. They were surrounded. There was no way out. They were going to have to fight or flee. And so before they decide to take up arms against the army, Colonel William Travis, understanding that by fighting against the Mexican army in this battle, it was certain death. They were going to lose their lives. And so what he decided to do is he decided to draw his sword and draw a line in the sand. And he talked to his troops. He said, you know what? I know what I'm about to ask you to do. So I'm not going to force anyone to follow me. But if you desire to take a stand, to give your lives in honor for the country, to give your country a shot to hold this ground, then I'm going to ask you to cross this line and stand with me. And as history records, all but one crossed the line. One was left to tell the tale. And in that battle, we know if we remember our history, that every American soldier died that day. Everyone, famous people like Davy Crockett and Jim Bowie, men that uh, fill our history pages as we look at the founding of this nation and what we went through as a country. But we use this imagery that, that Colonel William Travis used in this story about the line in the sand. And we use this to kind of reflect on boundaries. And we understand that when you talk about crossing the line, what you're really saying is that once you cross the line, there's no going back. Right? Once you get to the other side, you are committing to deal with the consequences of whatever awaits you over there. That's what these men were committing to. They were committing to dealing with the fact that they would not walk away from this battle, that they would die that day. And we use that line even in our our, uh, conversations. When you're talking with somebody and they start to get a little insulting, what do we say? We say, hey man, you're crossing the what? The line. You're crossing the line. Whenever our government is dealing with uh, uh, political issues in other nations, and we're talking about foreign affairs, uh, specifically recently in Iran, I'm talking about their nuclear program. President Obama drew the red what? Line. Right. Having to do with them ramping up their nuclear program and reducing their ability to have nuclear arms. So we use this terminology about the line all the time in our society. And, uh, and we talk about that if you cross the line, you are bound to have some form of negative consequences. Consequences are bound to occur. And I can think about when I was a, a little child and we would go to a theme park, whether it was with our church group or as a family. And the worst you know, part you would think for a child going to a theme park is waiting an hour in line for your favorite roller coaster. You know, and, and I seem to think that that I remember just like being stir-crazy, not, not wanting to sit still, being just drawn nuts, like, man, what is up? Let's get through this line. Let's get to the front. But I, in my mind, I think that's not the worst part. The worst part is when you finally get to the front of the line, but the door closes right when it's your turn to step on, right? So you're there at the front, the, the little... Uh, Barrier closes, and now you have to wait for everyone to go through and get back on for you to get back, uh, to get on the roller coaster. And I can remember as a kid that the barrier that's there didn't really bother me that much, you know, because I could duck under that pretty easily. It was, it was easy to, to uh, avoid that barrier. But what got my attention was the line painted on the concrete. You know, you get there and you're like, well, I can duck under, I can climb on this barrier, but that line, I know, just even as a kid, no one has to tell me, I know I'm not supposed to cross that line. But what happens when we see the line that we're not supposed to cross? We start thinking about it, and it starts to rise, like, bother us a little bit, and so we start to kind of investigate the line and and flirt with the line a little bit. You you start to kind of put your foot across the line to see if anyone's going to see you or say anything, and then you bring it back over real quickly, make sure that no one gets in trouble, gets you in trouble. And, and you do that a couple of times as you're waiting. And when you realize no one saw you or no one seemed to care, then you kind of venture out a little more. You get underneath that barrier and stick your whole leg out on the side to see if anybody is going to say anything. And before too long, when you realize no one's saying anything, you've crossed the whole line uh, and, you're, and you're where you're not supposed to be. And then the attendant shouts at you, Hey, kid, get back over there. You're going to get what? Hurt. You're going to get hurt because the line is there to protect you from getting hurt, from falling onto the track, or doing something that uh, is going to cause harm. And immediately when the attendant yells at you, your parent grabs you by your shirt and yanks you back across the line and gives you that look like, oh, you're dead when we get home. You know, it's a, it's a thing that we do. And I can, I can remember that I knew instinctively that the line was there for a purpose. But see, as adults, we do the very same thing with the lines, in the barriers, in the protections that we know God has written about in his word. We know that those lines are there for a reason. But when we know what lines are in the scripture, when we know what God has said not to do or to do, the line begins to tempt us a little bit. And we tend to try to get close to the line Maybe without going over the line, but we want to see how close to the line that we can actually get. And eventually, by getting close to the line, we guarantee for ourselves that eventually we will cross the line. And once we cross the line, there's no going back. And this is kind of what's going on. This is the dynamic that Jesus is having with these Pharisees. Because what they're doing is they're rebuking the disciples for not following the customs that they invented for themselves. They drew these customs, these lines, and they held them up to be just as authoritative, just as important as the very laws of God. And so they're approaching Jesus and they're saying, hey, your disciples aren't doing what's right. They're not being as spiritual as we are because they're not following our ways. And Jesus comes back and he's like, what are you talking about? You know, and and he, I think Jesus was probably the, the very first politician because he answers a question with a question. Right? And I think this is where all of our politicians get this. They, they, they ask him, how come your disciples don't do this? And Jesus responds with a question. And the reason is, is because these Pharisees, what they were doing is they weren't abiding by the lines God had drawn. What they were doing is they were looking for the loopholes in the law. They were looking for the loopholes in the rules and the regulations that would help them not only cross the line, would help them justify themselves when they were on the other side. They were looking for ways to do what their sinful nature wanted them to do and yet justify it through some form of spiritual needs. And in verse 7, Jesus rebukes these Pharisees and he says to them, You hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you for he wrote these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are so far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as the commands from God. And as as we look at this story, these Pharisees, these were equal to the pastors or spiritual leaders of our day. They were respected. They were acknowledged as being people that were holy next to God. They were revered as being like the the Pope and the Billy Graham that we would recognize today. That's who these Pharisees were. And yet Jesus has this public rebuke for them because he knew the status of their hearts. He knew that they were more concerned with living according to their loopholes than they were the actual law. And the first point that I want to make today as I look at this story and how we can relate this exchange to our lives is, number one, God requires more of you than lip service. God requires more of you than lip service. God isn't looking for a people who appear to be spiritual or appear to be godly. He's not looking for a people to appear like they have faith. God is looking for a people who have genuine faith, who actually are what they say they are. And this is something that every one of us wrestle with because it's our nature. I think it's part of our sinful nature. But every one of us, we look for loopholes. In our culture, we look for loopholes. We look for ways that we can get away with not doing everything that we know God has said for us to do. And and, and this is so common even in the church. You know, one of the biggest issues that we face, especially in our day with technology being the way that it is, is the issue of pornography. Pornography is an epidemic, especially in the church. Why? Because most of the time we don't talk about it and everybody hides it. But there are people that are addicted. It's destroying lives. It's destroying marriages. Pornography is a major issue. But this is one of the areas that we create loopholes for ourselves, especially in the church. And what we do is we'll categorize things. And we'll categorize them like this. We'll say, well, since you know, those, those sites that you click away on the computer, you click away from those really quick when people enter the room. As long as I'm not going to those sites or as long as I'm not ordering those magazines that I have to hide under my bed or as long as I'm not going to the back room of family video and ordering from those shelves, then I must be okay. I'm not involved in pornography. And we categorize that as being what's wicked and what's evil and what we should stay away from. But then we find a loophole and we say, well, since Marvel has come out with a new movie like Deadpool, and put a superhero in a film that also depicts naked people doing sexual things, that because that's a Marvel movie and it's a superhero movie, then that must be okay. So this, this over here, those, those internet sites, those magazines, the, those things, those are what we need to stay away from, but the popular shows like Game of Thrones and the things that, that Showtime produces and these movies that Marvel's coming out with and other films that are popular in our culture, we say because that's at the movie theater and not in the back room, then it must not be as bad as the other. The problem with that thinking is that they're both showing the very same thing. They're both depicting sexual situations and using nudity to inspire lust in our hearts. And and this is a big deal. And we we categorize things and we say, well, it's not as big a deal as the other because it's just different. But in the eyes of God, it's not different. Jesus, in talking about marriage and talking about adultery, what Jesus says, he says that if a person thinks about another person with lustful intent, it's the very same thing as committing adultery with that person before God. That if a man looks at another woman with lust in his heart, it's if he committed adultery with her before God. So to God, lust and the actual physical act of adultery is the very same thing. It's the very same thing. matter of fact, Jesus takes a step further and he says, if you have a problem with lust, you should gouge out your own eyes because it's better that you be blind than burn in hell for the sinful nature of your own heart. So as Christians and in the church and in our world, in this world of technology that we live in, we'll look at movies like Deadpool and and other uh, movies that have nudity and sexual content. And there we'll be like, well, those aren't so bad. Those are the bad movies. And God looks at both of them and says, you should gouge out your eyes out for all of it. It's equally bad. And these are things that we follow or we we come across every day in our culture as we see one thing that we consider bad and we look at something else and we say that's not so bad and we justify our participation in this because it's not this. That's how we can look at somebody else's sin at the same time ignoring our own sin because we try to follow the loopholes rather than the law. And I was thinking about this this week And I have to ask the question, at what point, as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, at what point do we say what God wants for us is better than what Satan wants from us? At what point does what God want for us is better than what Satan wants from us? And if you think about it, God is for us. God is for you because God is a giver. Everything God does is to give us something. He gave his son to give us forgiveness, to give us eternal life, to give us salvation, to give us grace, to give us his whole being, his whole self, unfettered access to the creator of the universe. Everything God has done for us is to give us something because God is for us. Paul said, if God is for us, what can ever be against us? God is for his people. Satan is the exact opposite. Jesus in John 10.10 says Satan is a thief. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Satan wants to take from you, not give to you. And what does he want to take from you? He wants to take everything God has prepared for you. So he's going to put things in your life to steal away what God has planned for you. As we look at uh, our, our world and the moral standards and immorality and, and pornography and sexual, sexuality, and we're looking at how we try to live according to loopholes versus what God has set before us, this is so easy to see in the fact that divorce is so high in our culture. Divorce and in, in, in the ability to have relationships. I, I'm a father of four. Two of my children are girls. And I'm telling you, my heart breaks to think about them having any godly men to choose from when they get old. I mean, where are all the godly men? Where are all the guys that say, I'm going to put God first in my life. I'm going to save myself for my wife because what God wants for me is better than what Satan wants to take from me. Where are all the the boys being raised to honor their future spouses with their mind and with their eyes and to put God first and say what God wants for my life is more important than all the success and things that I can have in the world? Where are the men that are raising up to say I'm going to sacrifice or I'm going to surrender my life to Jesus and follow his will for my life? You can't find them. They're not there. And so many men, even in our, our churches across the nation... They're here, but they're not really here. And so I think about my girls, and I'm thinking about where are going to be the men that they're going to have to choose from? Where are going to the godly men going to come from that are going to raise them up? And I wonder, why is this such a big problem? And the answer is easy, because we categorize this content as being evil, and we created loopholes that allow this content. And so our fathers are raising our sons up to look at things that enable them to look at women as objects rather than souls. And our boys are looking at girls as that they only exist to satisfy them visually and satisfy them physically. And so when they finally get to a relationship and they realize not every woman is photoshopped, they have a hard time connecting and honoring the woman that God has brought into their life. And these issues we wrestle with back and forth, but it's because we start at the the beginning of living according to loopholes and not according to what God has planned for us. And by doing that, Satan is robbing us of the life and the blessing that God has planned for us. And I'm passionate about this because I know the damaging effects firsthand. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says, tells the church of Ephesus that men or husbands are to love their wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. That in the marriage, men are to be the imitators or the reflection of Jesus. As the wife is the reflection of the church, the husband is supposed to be the reflection or representative of God in the marriage. And how can men represent God who is a giver if all they are are takers? They don't marry to live sacrificially for their wife. They marry so their wife can live sacrificially for them. And so in our marriages, we end up reflecting more the enemy than we do our father because we're takers and not givers. And we have to ask ourselves, all of us, what are we more interested in? Looking godly or being godly? looking like we honor God, looking like we're interested in spiritual things, looking like we're interested in growing in our relationship with Jesus, looking like we have everything together, looking like we're dedicated Christians or actually being what we say we want to be. See, a person who spends more time searching for loopholes than respecting the lines God has drawn for us reveals a lot about the condition of our faith. And Jesus... In talking to the Pharisees, he says, God requires more than lip service. God requires more than you just to say or pretend or put on a show to make people think that you're godly. He requires you to actually be godly. The second point I want to make today is that Jesus has harsh words for hard hearts. He has harsh words for hard hearts. In verse 12, Matthew chapter 15, says, The disciples came to him and asked, Do you realize you offended the Pharisees by what you said? Jesus replied, "Every plant not planted by my heavenly Father will be uprooted. So ignore them. They are blind guides leading the blind, and if one blind person guides another, they will both fall into a ditch. We live in a very politically correct culture. Matter of fact, in our world today, people are so afraid to actually say what they're thinking, because if you say anything that could offend someone else, you could be sued, you could lose your job you could be taken to to court you could you know be vilified and have your life threatened on the internet social media becomes a place of terrorism whenever you take stands that offend other people and so we have this fear of using hate speech or or this fear of being called a bigot or a racist or what have you, even if that's not the case, people tend to twist words when they're offended to make you out to be something that you're not. And right here in this scripture, we see that Jesus had these harsh words for these Pharisees, that they were offended. And in our world today, if Jesus was here and said this to To a group of people, he would probably be vilified. He'd probably be uh, blown up all over Twitter, talking about how he's a racist and a bigot and and not uh, tolerant. And this isn't the image of Jesus that we like to use. When when we talk about spiritual things and we talk about sin, uh, the story that comes up usually is the story of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. They like to use this as a justification to be able to live however they want to live. And so uh, oftentimes what's said is you know, the, the woman that was caught in adultery was brought to Christ. The Pharisees, the same group of people we're talking about today, wanted to stone her to death. And uh, they asked Jesus what should they do. And Jesus wrote with his hand in the, in the sand. And he stood up and he said, you who has no sin cast the first stone. And they all dropped their stones and walked away. And he picked that woman up and he says, I don't condemn you either. And they use this story, people use this story to say, well, since Jesus didn't condemn her for her sin, then my sin, he's not gonna condemn me for. And that's a way to justify or create a loophole to be able to continue to live how you want, even though God's word may speak against your decisions. And the thing about that story is that We use the first part of that story to justify our sin, but we forget about the second part of the story. Jesus doesn't just pick her up and says, I don't condemn you. He picks her up and says, I don't condemn you. Go and sin what? No more. In other words, go and live a changed life. Have a second chance. Here's some grace. Go do something with it. Go honor me with it. You see, the thing about the the difference between these Pharisees and this woman caught in adultery is that both of them were broken. They were both broken. They were both living in sin, just different kinds. The difference and the reason why the woman caught in adultery got grace and the Pharisees got a harsh rebuke is because the woman recognized she was broken. She recognized she was a sinner. She recognized that that she had no way to turn her situation around. And if Jesus didn't intervene, she was going to be condemned. And so she needed, she recognized, she desired Jesus to save her. And so he picked her up in his grace and said, walk, sin no more, live a new life, be changed. The Pharisees clung to their religion, clung to their empty religion, their false commandments, their false teachings, their false traditions, and said, Jesus, I don't need what you have to offer. And so instead of being filled with his grace and being offered grace and mercy, they were given a strong rebuke. In Psalm 51 verse 17, David He says, the sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, oh God. See, God doesn't want religion. God doesn't want sacrifice. God doesn't want all the special things that we do in his name. God wants a broken and repentant heart, a heart that knows that they desperately need him. See, God doesn't care what happens in this building if it doesn't affect this building. See, Paul, the apostle, said that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. If you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God comes to live with inside of you. You are a walking temple if you believe in Jesus Christ. But God doesn't care what you do in this building if it doesn't affect this building, if it doesn't lead you to be more like Jesus Christ. He, he tells the church, Paul tells the church in Corinth, he talks about repentance, and he uses this terminology, he calls it worldly sorrow. Versus godly sorrow in 2 Corinthians 7.10. He says, the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow. But worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. You see, anyone can feel bad about their sin. Anyone can feel convicted. Anyone can feel sorry for what they've done or the life that they've lived or the decisions that they've made. What matters to God is what you do with that. If you don't leave that conviction, that sorrow, that guilt feeling to walk and do, make different choices, to make different decisions, then that sorrow, that guilt, the, that, that pain that you feel is doing nothing for you. It's... Godly sorrow that leads towards repentance, that leads towards a change that brings about the honor and glory of God. Worldly sorrow does nothing but leave you dead in your sins. And some of you here today will be offended today. That's not my intention. You need to hear my heart because I want good for you. I want God to bless you. I want you to have an amazing life. Jesus said he came to give us an abundant life, and I want that for you. But some of you here today are going to be offended. You're going to feel like I'm picking on you specifically, and that's not the case. But you're going to be offended because you know exactly what God's word says about some of the decisions you've been making, some of the choices you've been making or have made. But just like the Pharisees, you are going to reject it you're going to reject the line that God has written in the sand for you. You're going to cling to your loopholes, your excuses, your reasons as to why that doesn't apply to you. And in so doing, you're going to reject God's will and forfeit the blessing and the good that he's planned for your life as you walk in your blindness. So you're going to walk away offended, but you're going to walk away missing out on what God wants to do in your life. In 2 Timothy 3.5 five. Paul says they will act religious, but they will reject the power that can make them godly. Stay away from people like that. Here he's mirroring the words Jesus said to the Pharisees. Jesus basically said, look, those with hard hearts, I don't have time for them. I love them, but I don't have time for them. I'm here to seek and to save that which is lost. And here Paul tells Timothy, the people that just want to play church, that that want to be associated with Jesus, but don't want a relationship with him that actually requires something of them, you don't have time for them either. You don't have time for those who are going to harden their hearts and not repent. What power is Paul talking about here? It's the power of the cross of Jesus Christ in the life of a person who repents and turns to Jesus for mercy, for grace, for salvation. Paul tells Timothy not to waste his time with people that just want to pretend like they have true faith. See, a relationship with Jesus requires something of you. It requires repentance first and then faith second. James, the brother of Jesus, in James chapter 1, verse 22, he says, Don't just listen to God's word, you must do what it says. Otherwise, you are fooling yourselves. And there are many. Fools in churches all over the world today who week after week hear messages, who day after day read in their Bibles, listen to podcasts, read the next best spiritual book that hits the top 10 of the New York Times bestseller list, but yet it makes zero difference in their lives. They hear the word, but they don't do anything with it. If all you want is a faith that makes you feel good about who you are but doesn't motivate you to give up who you are to become more like Jesus Christ, then you really don't want Christianity. You want a cheap imitation. Jesus, in Luke 13, 3, he says, and you will perish too unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. See, if we keep flirting with the line, we will keep crossing the line as followers of Jesus Christ. If you truly want to follow Jesus, if you truly want to honor him with your life, then you should desire to live how God desires for you to live your life so that you can reap blessing, not consequences, because sin has an effect. We don't think about this a lot, but sin has an effect. It affects that rob you of what God has prepared for you. Satan doesn't tempt you to sin just for fun. He tempts you to sin to rob you of the blessing that God has prepared for you, to rob you of what God desires, the good that he desires to bring about in your life. One of my kids, as of late, has been having an issue with listening. You may not be able to relate to that, but you know uh, my kids, at least... Have an issue with listening. And one of them, uh, you know, it's not it's not really malicious, it's just annoying, really. But uh we'll be at the dinner table or we'll be doing something, and he will um be doing something that's about to make a mess, or about to do something that's careless and, and create a problem, or he's annoying somebody and and uh won't stop. And so I'll have to correct him and I'll give him just a really simple, quick instruction, be like, hey, stop it. Stop doing that. You're you're gonna make a mess, you're gonna do whatever. And immediately after I give him the instruction, what do you think happens? He goes and does the very same thing anyway. And so I'm like, hey, was I not speaking English? I mean, I think I was speaking English. It sounded like English to me. Was I speaking English? Did you understand what I said? Well, yeah. Well, why didn't you do what I said? And his response is, I don't know. And I'm like, you don't know, but I know you didn't want to do what I said. You just didn't want to do it. And you didn't want to do it for a couple reasons. Either one, you didn't believe I was right. Or two, you didn't trust that I was having your best interest at heart. But guess what? Now that you crossed that line, there are consequences. Either the mess was made or because he didn't listen, now he has a consequence. And this is how it is in our lives. We see what God has set up for us. We see the lines that he's drawn in the sand for us. But because we either, A, don't want to obey him, or B, we don't trust that he has our best intentions at heart, we cross the line anyway. We go our own way. We do our own thing. And the third point I want to make today is that obedience is centered on how much you trust. Obedience is centered on how much you trust God. If we trusted God's heart and we would honor his will. If we trusted his heart, we would honor his, What well. we would follow what he says for our lives because we would know that he has our best intentions at heart. A story as I was studying for this message, God brought my attention back to Genesis, the very first family of the Bible, Adam and Eve. If you remember the story, God makes man, uh, man and woman, he makes them perfect, right? He says they're all good. You know, everything was perfect there was no sin in the world. matter of fact, the descriptions of the world says that God gave Adam uh, dominion over the earth and that before sin entered that, that he didn't even have to sweat to work that he would till the ground and it would just do what he said there was no resistance there was no uh, issues like he would just throw seed down and it would grow. Uh, crops, that everything seemed to be easy and just natural. Everything was good. Everything was right. There was no struggle or hardship. And so that this world that God had created for the perfect couple was a perfect world. But because God wanted a relationship with us, he gave us a choice. He gave us a choice. He gave Adam and Eve a choice to honor him or not honor him. And you remember what the choice was? It was don't eat the uh, fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, Right? He planted a garden. He says, don't eat that fruit. If you eat that fruit, you're going to have some negative consequences. So don't eat it. Stay away from it. And so later in the story, you know that Satan takes the form of a serpent and comes and he tempts Eve and gets her to eat the fruit. And then Adam was right there hanging out too, and he eats the fruit. Sin enters into the world. Do you remember what the name of the tree was? The tree of what? The tree of... Of the knowledge of what? Good and evil. So God plants a tree before sin exists, and it's the knowledge of good and evil. So evil was already in existence. Wickedness was already in existence because that's how Satan was able to tempt Adam and Eve. Evil had already risen in his heart. God was telling them not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil to protect them from having the knowledge of evil. They were already experiencing good. What God was protecting them was from experiencing evil to having the knowledge of pain, the knowledge of suffering, the knowledge of sin, the knowledge of brokenness, the knowledge of rape, of of loss, of disease, of poverty, all the things that we struggle with in our lives. God was saying, don't eat that fruit. If you don't eat that fruit, you'll never know pain and suffering. But they ate it anyways. They ate it anyways, because Satan got them to doubt, to doubt what God was keeping them from was actually harmful, and he got them to believe that what Satan was leading them to was beautiful. He got them to doubt that what God was keeping them from was actually harmful and to believe what Satan was leading them to was beautiful. And in our world, Satan is doing the very same things with different agendas, different philosophies, different ideologies, different cultural issues and social issues. He's trying to get us to believe that what God says, stay away from, he's getting us not to believe that those things are harmful and he's getting us to believe that they're actually beautiful. Because he wants to take from us what God has prepared for us. God had prepared a perfect world, a sinless world, a painless world for Adam and Eve. And the enemy robbed them of that world. You see, the minute you believe the enemy over God, you cross the line. You've just, not just crossed the line, but you've lost the protection of God. The protection that he was keeping you from. The pain of what was on the other side. And when you cross the line, you give power over to the enemy to bring harm and suffering and evil into your life. I can't imagine what was going on in Adam and Eve's mind the minute they recognized that they were naked. But see, because of Jesus Christ, because of the cross, this isn't something Adam and Eve had opportunity to do. Because Jesus hadn't come yet, but because of the cross, the power that we give over to the enemy can be taken back. But it begins with repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. You have to make a choice. You'll either cross back over the line to turn away from your sin, to go back over the line and pursue God's will for your life as you trust in Jesus. Or you're going to choose to stay where you are over the line and pretend like everything's okay. Like you're not experiencing the effects of your sin. So the moment Adam and Eve ate that apple or fruit, whatever it was, they knew something was wrong. They were different. They knew they were naked. Their eyes were opened. They were ashamed. And so what did they do? They went around, scrounged around for, for some supplies. They found some fig leaves. They sewed them together to cover up their shame, to cover their bodies. You see, we know deep down when we are doing things that are not honoring God. We know deep down that when we make decisions that are sinful, when we decide to do things that aren't right, we know in our hearts that there's shame there. There's something wrong. There's something not right. Whether we want to admit it publicly or not, we know deep down that there is something wrong when we cross the line. But many times, instead of choosing repentance, We choose the path of Adam and Eve, and we go look for some fig leaves to cover our shame. And many people today, they cover their shame, they cover their sin with empty religion. They think, well, if I just attend so many services a week, if I make sure I give a little in the plate, if I uh, go to all the different special uh, ceremonies and go through all the different rituals, then my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds, and when I stand before God, it'll all wash out. It's empty. Religion giving them an excuse to stay the same way that they are. Some cover their sin and their shame with atheism. They say, if I just choose not to believe any of it, then I don't even have to, uh, to, to, to think about my sin. I don't even have to think about the consequences of my actions because I just will refuse to believe in it. And anything that happens to me will just be because that's the way life is. Some will cover their sin with anger, with attitude, with pride, with overconfidence, and they'll say, you know, you can't judge me. You can't talk about me that way. You can't call my sin, sin, you hypocrite. Focus on your own life. My, my life is not your life. God loves me just the way I am, citing the woman caught in adultery. See, the danger in trying to cover your sins Is found in Jesus' harsh words to those that refuse to cross back over the line in repentance. Those harsh words to the Pharisees. Because God says, I love you. Jesus was providing them opportunity to hear the truth, to have relationship. God says, I love you. But when you harden your heart against repentance, his response to you is, well, then I don't have time for you. I love you, but I don't have time for you. If your sin is what you want, then I will leave you to reap the consequences of your actions. I will leave you to reap the consequences of your sin. You see, Adam and Eve, when when they sinned, God came into the garden. God came looking for them, just like he comes to look for each and every one of us. God came looking for them, and he said, what's wrong, Adam? And Adam says, I'm naked. And God says, well, who told you you were naked? And he says, well, the woman you gave me gave me this fruit. He blamed her for his sin. He didn't own it. He didn't ask for forgiveness. He didn't repent. He put he cast blame. He made up an excuse. He tried to find a loophole. So God goes to the woman and he says, "What did you do?" Eve and she says, "The serpent beguiled me. The certain tempted me. He, she started casting blame on him, looking for a way to cover her actions, to create a loophole, to make an excuse in order to keep from having to admit the truth that she sinned and needed to repent. And what happened in that story is that God said a judgment, and he cast him out of the garden. He said, if you are going to live in this sin, if you're going to uh, choose sin and not repent. I don't have time for you. And he sent them out of the garden to deal with the consequences of their own sin. The problem with having a religion that doesn't start with repentance, to having a faith that doesn't start with turning from sin and trusting in Jesus Christ is that heaven and hell are in the balance. Your actions, your attitudes will reflect the nature of your heart. Jesus said right here in Matthew 15 that your heart is what defiles you. So you are either drowning in his grace through repentance or you are left to face the weight of your own sin as you follow a fake religion. All on your own. And I know there's some of you here today, you're facing insurmountable odds and you ask, you're asking questions like, well, what do I do now? If I choose to repent, if I choose to turn away from these things that I know I'm not supposed to be doing, where do I go from here, Pastor Joey? If I do this, I'm going to have incredible financial burden, or I'm going to have incredible uh, problems in my relationships by turning and, f- and turning to Jesus and trying to live in a righteous way. And I, I'm not trying to minimize these, these situations. I understand these things are painful and they're hard, but there are no consequence-less sins Sin has an effect, and when you choose to sin, when you choose to cross the line, there's going to be some pain getting back over the line. What you have to do is you have to decide, who do you trust? Do you trust God? Do you trust his heart for you? That if you trust him, the answer is simple. The answer is turn to Jesus, repent of your sin, give him your heart, and then let him begin to work out the messy parts of your life. We have a promise of God in Romans eight twenty eight. Paul tells the church of Rome that God will work all things out together for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purposes. God will work all things out for your good. That doesn't mean everything will be good. It means he will work out what is not good out for your good. But that can only happen for those who love him. Well, who loves him? Jesus made it simple. Those who love me do what? Obey me. Those who love me, trust me. Listen to what I say and obey me. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. Repentance is not going to be easy, it's going to be messy, but it's also going to be worth it. Because what he wants for you is far greater than what the enemy wants from you. Repentance, simply agreeing with God that what he says is sin is sin, and making the decision to cross back over the line, to trust his will, to obey his word. And as you trust in Jesus Christ, something miraculous happens. As you repent and you follow Jesus, something incredible happens. Your heart and your mind begin to be renewed as he breathes new life into you. And then you start thinking the way God thinks. You start believing the way God believes. And your life lines up with his. Word of God says, That his desire for all of us is that we would be conformed or molded into the image of Jesus. That we would be holy as he is holy. And as we dedicate our lives to serving, to following Christ, trusting him more and more each and every day, we become like Jesus. Matthew 16, 26. Jesus asks a question. He says, what do you benefit? If you gain the whole world but lose your soul, is anything worth your soul. And we could rephrase it this way. We know the average lifespan of a human in this day is 70 to 80 some years. We could rephrase this like this. We could say, what good is it if you live 70, 70 to 80 some years the way you want, pursuing what you think is going to make you happy, pursuing what you want out of life? What good is it if you do all of that only to die separated from God forever and forever, forever. God who is the source of all hope, of all love, of all joy, of all peace, and all happiness. What good is it if you pursue happiness in this life only to be separated from the source of happiness in the next life? And every one of us in this room would answer, it is no good. It is no good. Nothing is worth losing your soul over. Let me encourage you today, church. Don't sacrifice eternal pleasure for temporary satisfaction. Don't sacrifice eternal pleasures for temporary satisfaction. We need to have a mind that is fixed on Jesus, a mind that is fixed on heaven, on the kingdom of God, on what is coming next, not on what we go through temporarily. The core concept for this message today, as we begin to close, is this. That until we get to the place where we view his line in the sand as protection rather than prohibition, we will continue to flirt with the line of disobedience and cross over the line suffering consequences. We need to be a people of repentance, not loopholes. A person who wants to continue to cross the line with no regard to God's purposes Who doesn't recognize their need for repentance will one day stand before God to give an account for their life. And Jesus said in Matthew 7 that they will be those that claim, Lord, Lord, didn't I do all these great things in your name? And he will say, depart from me, you who work iniquity. I never knew you. Because a relationship with Jesus begins with repentance. No amount of religion, no amount of good deeds is going to be enough to cover your sin. Only a relationship with Christ that leads away from sin through repentance will suffice there's some of you here today who are living in sin and you are not repentant. You've been hiding, you've been covering things up, you've been sowing fig leaves. You might feel bad about your sin, you might feel guilty, but the discomfort of what you would have to go through if you actually repented and made decisions to honor God with your life, those thoughts have brought such discomfort to you that instead of honoring God and repenting, you stayed across the line and made yourself comfortable. You've sown your fig leaves and you're using those as excuses as to reasons why you shouldn't have to change. If that's you here today, you need to know and hear me, I want good for you. I love you. But hear me on this. If that's you here today, your faith is in vain. Your worship is merely lip service. God doesn't accept that kind of worship. God doesn't honor that kind of life. Jesus loves you more than you can imagine, but he didn't go through the horrors of the cross to keep you the way you are. He loves you as you are, but He doesn't desire to keep you as you are. He desires to turn you into a mirror reflection of who He is. God's desire is that you would be holy as He is holy. Today, you need to cross back over the line in repentance, to repent of your lying tongue, of your lusting heart, to repent of your stubborn will, to repent of your pride and your arrogance, to repent of your resistance to His Word, to repent of the lies you've believed from the enemy, to repent of your adultery, of your immorality, of your selfishness, of your cowardice. Today is the day you finally give your whole life to Jesus. Don't harden your heart any longer. Give it to the Lord. Stop flattering Jesus and start following Him. Stop arguing with His Word and start living according to His Word. He loves you more than you could possibly imagine. He wants good for you. He stored up incredible blessing for you. He wants to protect you. He wants to breathe new life in you, but he cannot do that as long as you are on the other side of the line. Today is decision day. Not because we're in a season of politics and voting for political candidates, but today is decision day because today you are going to have to make a choice. What do you choose? Which side of the line are you going to be on today? Let's bow our heads and let's close our eyes in this place. Father, I just pray in this place, as we're all faced with the reality of our sinfulness, God, if there's someone here today that has yet to turn from their sin and trust in Jesus, that has yet to make you first and foremost in their life, that has yet to say that what you want for me is far greater than what the enemy wants to take from me, And so I'm going to dedicate my life this day forward to following Jesus, to trusting his will for my life, and living in obedience to his word. God, I pray their hearts would be open. God, and today I pray that they would pray the prayer of faith. That today would be the day that they begin a true and authentic relationship with you. In the name of Jesus, we pray with every head bowed and every eye closed no one looking around in this place if you are here today and you are faced with the reality of your heart maybe you've been in church your whole life maybe you've grown up in church maybe your parents always brought you faith has always been something that was been a part of your life but today you hear the spirit of God speaking to your, your heart and you recognize that your faith was not your own that Your faith hasn't been true faith because it's not been founded in repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. I'm gonna invite you today to begin for the very first time a relationship with Jesus. That you pray and ask him to forgive you of your sin. And that today you make a commitment to even through the difficulty to begin living according to his word taking steps to seeking people to help you come alongside of you in your journey as you make some decisions, some very hard decisions. Maybe as you need to make a confession to a loved one about things you've been dishonest about, maybe living in a romantic relationship, you know, is not honoring and glorifying God, whatever it is that you've been doing. That you make a commitment today to begin honoring the Lord with your life. And I know that he will work everything out in your life for your good. If that's you in this place, just pray this prayer with me. Just repeat these words aloud from your heart to God in this place. Say, Father in heaven, I am a sinner. And you know the darkness in my heart. You know how I've been resisting you. Forgive me and save me. I need your grace and your love today. I'm placing my faith and trust in Jesus Christ and putting my hope in his resurrection. Fill me with your spirit. Give me the strength and boldness to repent and to trust in you. You have my heart in this place. In Jesus' name. Again, with every head bowed, every eye closed, knowing, looking around, let's go ahead and stand to our feet in this place as we're going to sing. Stand to our feet. If you are here today and you are a child of God, but there are some things that you've been doing, some things you've been struggling with, some sins that, some lines that you've been crossing, that you've been struggling with getting back over to the other side, I'm going to ask you in just a moment to come down and make this front row an altar before the Lord and just to reconnect, reconfirm, resurrender your life to Him to make the decision today to stop dishonoring God with your life and start honoring him with all that you are, to becoming holy like he is holy. So as we sing, you respond to what the Lord is laying on your heart.